All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Angela Y. Davis's Women, Race, and Class. We're going to pick up where we left off at on the top of page, or in the middle of page 132. Excuse me. All right. The pioneering Women's Era Club in Boston continued the strenuous defense of black people, which Ida B. Wells had urged at their first meeting. When the National Conference of the Unitarian Church refused to pass an anti-lynching resolution, New Era members issued a strong protest in an open letter to one of the leading women of the church. Quote, We, the members of the Women's Era Club, believe we speak for the colored women of America. As colored women, we have suffered and do suffer too much to be blind to the suffering of others. But naturally, we are more keenly alive to our own suffering than to others. We therefore feel that we should be false to ourselves, to our opportunities, and to our race should we keep silent in a case like this. We have endured much and we believe with patience. We have seen our world broken down, our men made fugitives and wanderers, or their youth and strength spent in bondage. We ourselves are daily hindered and oppressed in the race of life. We know that every opportunity for advancement, for peace and happiness will be denied us. Christian men and women absolutely refuse to open their churches to us. Our children are considered legitimate prey for insult. Our young girls can at any time be thrust into the foul and filthy cars and no matter their needs be refused food and shelter. End quote. After referring to the educational and cultural deprivation suffered by black women, the protest letter called for a massive outcry against lynching. Quote, in the interest of justice for the good name of our country, we solemnly raise our voice against the horrible crimes of lynch law. And we call upon Christians everywhere to do the same or be branded as sympathizers with the murderers. End quote. When the first National Conference of Colored Women convened in Boston in 1895, the black club women were not simply emulating their white counterparts who had federated the club movement five years earlier. They had come together to decide upon a strategy of resistance to the current propagandistic assaults on black women and the continued reign of lynch law. Responding to an attack on Ida B. Wells by the pro-lynching president of the Missouri Press Association, the conference delegates protested that, quote, insult to Negro womanhood, end quote, and sent out, quote, to the country a unanimous endorsement of the course Wales had pursued in her agitation against lynching, end quote. Fanny Barrier Williams, whom white women in Chicago had excluded from their club, summed up the difference between the white club movement and the club movement among her people. Black women, she said, had come to realize that, quote, progress includes a great deal more than what is generally meant by the terms culture, education, and contact. The club movement among colored women reaches into the sub-condition of the entire race. The club movement is only one of the many means for the social uplift of a race. The club movement is well-purposed. It is not a fad. It is rather the force of a new intelligence against the old ignorance. The struggle of an enlightened consciousness against the whole brood of social miseries born out of the stress and pain of a hated past. End quote. While the black women's club movement was emphatically committed to the struggle for black liberation, its middle class leaders were sometimes, unfortunately, elitist in their attitudes toward the masses of their people. Fanny Barrier Williams, for example, 
envisioned the club women as, quote, the new intelligence, the enlightened conscience, end quote, of the race. Quote, among white women, clubs mean the forward movement of the best women in the interest of the best womanhood. Among colored women, the club is the effort of the few competent in behalf of the many incompetent, end quote. Prior to the definitive establishment of a national black women's club organization, there was apparently some unfortunate competition among leading club women. Based on the 1895 Boston Conference called by Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, the National Federation of Afro-American Women was founded the same year, electing Margaret Murray Washington as its president. It brought together over 30 clubs, which were active in 12 states. In 1896, the National League of Colored Women was founded in Washington, D.C., with Mary Church Terrell as its president. The competing organizations soon emerged, however, forming the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which elected Terrell to its highest office. Over the next several years, Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells would express a mutual hostility within the national black club movement. In her autobiography, Wells claims that Terrell was personally responsible for her exclusion from the 1899 convention of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs that was held in Chicago. According to Wells, Terrell's fears about her own re-election as president caused her to exclude the former newspaper woman and to minimize, during the convention, the struggle against lynching which her rival had come to personify. Mary Church Terrell was the daughter of a slave who had received, after the emancipation, a considerable inheritance from his slave master father. Because of her family's wealth, she enjoyed unique educational opportunities. After four years at Oberlin College, Terrell became the third black woman college graduate in the country, and she went on to study at several institutions of higher learning abroad. A high school teacher and later a university professor, Mary Church Terrell became the first black woman appointed to the Board of Education in the District of Columbia. Had she sought personal wealth and fulfillment through a political or academic career, she would undoubtedly have been successful. But her concern for the collective liberation of her people led her to devote her entire adult life to the struggle for black liberation. More than anyone else, Mary Church Terrell was the driving force that molded the black women's club movement into a powerful political group. Excuse me, wind blowing a little bit. While Ida B. Wells was one of Terrell's severest critics, she acknowledged the importance of her role in the club movement. As she pointed out, quote, Mrs. Terrell was by all odds the best educated woman among us, end quote. Like Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells was born into a family of ex-slaves. When an epidemic of yellow fever claimed the lives of her parents, Wells was still a teenager with five younger sisters and brothers to support. She embarked upon a teaching career as a direct response to this enormous burden. But her personal hardships were not so overwhelming as to prevent her from pursuing a path of anti-racist activism. At the young age of 22, she challenged the racial discrimination she suffered as a railroad traveler by filing suit against the railroad in court. Ten years later, Ida B. Wells was publishing her own newspaper in Memphis, Tennessee, and after three of her friends were murdered by a racist mob, turned the paper into a powerful weapon against lynching. Forced into exile when the racist threatened her life and destroyed her newspaper offices, Wells launched her astounding, effective crusade against lynching. 
calling upon black and white alike to massively oppose the reign of lynch law. She traveled from city to city. Damn, this wind is crazy, man. My fault. Trying to move around to stop it from being so directly into the mic. <clears throat> Bear with me. Her tours abroad encourage Europeans to organize solidarity campaigns against the lynching of black people in the United States. Two decades later, at the age of 57, Ida B. Wells rushed to the scene of the East St. Louis riot. When she was 63 years old, she conducted an investigation into a mob attack by racists in Arkansas. And on the eve of her death, she was as militant as ever, leading a black women's demonstration against the segregationist policies of a major Chicago hotel. In her protracted crusade against lynching, Ida B. Wells had become an expert at agitation confrontation tactics. But few could equal Mary Church Terrell as an advocate of black liberation through the written and spoken word. She sought freedom for her people through logic and persuasion. An eloquent writer, a powerful orator, and a master at the art of debate, Terrell waged persistent and principled defenses of black equality and women's suffrage, as well as the rights of working people. Like Ida B. Wells, she was active up to the year of her death at the age of 90. In one of her last defiant gestures against racism, she marched in the Washington, D.C. picket line when she was 89 years old. Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell were unquestionably the two outstanding black women of their era. Their personal feud, which spanned several decades, was a tragic thread within the history of the black women's club movement. While their separate accomplishments were monumental, their united efforts could have really moved mountains for their sisters and for their people as a whole. And that brings us to the end of chapter eight. All right. Sorry about that. We had uh, some technical difficulties. So finished up chapter seven. I think what stands out to me the most about that, about that specific chapter is the is learning about the the black women's club movement learning about the women's club movement in general i didn't really i didn't have a a lot of information about that before uh beforehand before reading this chapter also reading learning about mary church terrell that was not a name that i was familiar with uh, either so i think that that was something that was very important for me an important takeaway from this chapter i think also the the light that Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell specifically were put in as being women who, if they would have so chose, could have used their immense talents and capabilities for things that would have been more individually advantageous. But both of these women used those abilities and gifts for things that were more collectively advantageous for their people. And I think that that's something that we, uh, a part of black culture specifically, that has been lost to some of the capitalistic tra- uh, traditions in the society, has been lost to some of the materialism in the society, that has been lost to the individualism that exudes out the society. And I think that if, in order to be to get to equitable standing in our society, we will once again need to to have more women like Ida B. Wells, more women that are like. Uh, Mary Church Terrell, who sacrifice individual gains that they can make in an effort to try to make collective gains. Uh, 
And so here, let's begin on chapter nine, working women, black women and the history of the suffrage movement. In January 1868, when Susan B. Anthony published the first issue of Revolution, working women whose ranks in the labor force have recently expanded, have begun to defend their rights conspicuously. During the Civil War, more white women than ever before had gone to work outside their homes. In 1870, while 70% of women workers were domestics, one-fourth of all non-farm workers in general were female. Within the garment industry, they had already become the majority. At this time, the labor movement was a rapidly expanding economic force comprising no less than 30 nationally organized unions. Inside the labor movement, however, the influence of male supremacy was so powerful that only the cigar makers and printers had opened their doors to women. But some women workers had attempted to organize themselves. During the Civil War and in its immediate aftermath, the sewing women constituted the largest group of women working outside their homes. When they began to organize, the spirit of unionization spread from New York to Boston and Philadelphia and to all the major cities where the garment industry flourished. When the National Labor Union was founded in 1866, its delegates were compelled to acknowledge the sewing women's efforts. At the initiative, at the initiative of William Silvis, the convention resolved to support not only the, quote, daughters of toil in the land, end quote, as the sewing women were called, but the general unionization of women and their full equality with respect to wages. When the National Labor Union reconvened in 1868, electing Silvis as their president, the presence of several women among the delegates, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, compelled the convention to pass stronger resolutions and generally treat the cause of women's rights, women's working rights, with greater seriousness than before. Women were welcomed at the 1869 founding convention of the National Colored Labor Union. As the black workers explained in one resolution, they did not want to commit, quote, the mistakes heretofore made by our white fellow citizens in omitting women, end quote. This black labor organization created because of the exclusionary policies of white labor groups proved by its practice to be more seriously committed to working women's rights than its white counterpart and predecessor. While the NLU had. Excuse me. While the NLU had simply passed resolutions supporting women's equality, the NCLU actually elected a woman, Mary S. Carey, to serve on the organization's policymaking executive committee. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not record any acknowledgement of the black labor organization's anti-sexist accomplishments. They were probably too absorbed in the suffrage battle to take note of that important development. In the first issue of Anthony's Revolution, the newspaper financed by the racist Democrat George Francis Train, the overall message was that women should seek the ballot. Once the reality of women's suffrage was established, so the paper seemed to say, it would be the millennium for women and the final triumph of mortality for the nation as a whole. Quote, we shall show that the ballot will secure for women equal place and equal wages in the world of work, that it will open to her the schools, colleges, professions and all the opportunities and advantages of life, that in her hand it will be a moral power to stay the tide of crime and misery on every side. End quote. Though his vision was often too narrowly focused on the ballot, 
Revolution played an important role in the struggles of working women during the two years it was published. The demand for the eight-hour day was repeatedly raised within the pages of the paper, as was the anti-sexist slogan, quote, equal pay for equal work, end quote. From 1868 to 1870, working women, especially in New York, could rely upon revolution to publicize their grievances as well as their strikes, their strategies, and their goals. Anthony's involvement in women's labor struggles of the post-war period was not restricted to journalistic solidarity. During the first year of her paper's publication, she and Stanton used the Revolution's office to organize printers into the Working Women's Association. Shortly thereafter, the National Typographers became the second union to admit women, and in the Revolution's offices, the Women's Typographical Union, Local Number 1, was established. Thanks to Susan B. Anthony's initiative, a second Working Women's Association was later organized among the sewing women. Although Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and their colleagues on the paper made important contributions to the cause of working women, they never really accepted the principle of trade unionism. As they had been previously unwilling to concede that black liberation might claim momentary priority over their own interests as white women, they did not fully embrace the fundamental principles of unity and class solidarity without which the labor movement will remain powerless. In the eyes of the suffragists, quote, woman, end quote, was the ultimate test. If the cause of woman could be furthered, it was not wrong for women to function as scabs when male workers in their trade were on strike. Susan B. Anthony was excluded from the 1869 convention of the National Labor Union because she had urged women printers to go to work as scabs. In defending herself at this, at this union, Anthony proclaimed, quote, Men have great wrongs in the world between the existence of labor and capital, but these wrongs as compared to the wrongs of women in whose faces the doors of the trades and vocations are slammed shut are not as a grain of sand on the seashore, end quote. I think one of the things I would, I think it's important to point out here is, again, a, a, a reemergence of, of Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony's lack of 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 understanding of intersectionality, their lack of understanding of how we are all intertwined with one another and how I cannot be my best me until you are your best you. And so just as was done previously when it came to the issues of black liberation and came to the issues of black suffrage, they were not willing to. They were not willing to go. Mm, what's the right, right way I want to phrase this? They were not willing to have a symbiotic political ideology with black people on the grounds of, of suffrage. They believe that white women should have the right to vote before black people had the right to vote. Uh, they believe that. They believe that by being too much in favor of of pro-black thoughts or by being too much in favor of of getting black people to vote, that that may lose some of the supporters that they have that wanted women to have the vote that were racist. And so they capitulated to. Uh, sorry about that. This tarp blowing this wind is rough tonight. 
So they capitulated to those the racist ideologies and the anti-black ideologies in an effort to further their cause of women's suffrage and women and white women's suffrage and white women's liberation. And so we see again here where because they are they, they well we see again here in this situation how they are uh, in some way capitulating to the class system that exists. Uh, all right, I'm gonna have to stop this. It's too damn windy. All right, let's continue reading. Oh, one second here. I want to move something around. All right. No, let me check the mic volume real quick. My fault. My fault. I should have did all this beforehand. Turn the mic down a little bit. All right. <clears throat> Anthony's and Stanton's postures during this episode were astonishingly similar to the suffragist anti-black position within the Equal Rights Association. As Anthony and Stanton attacked black men when they realized that the ex-slaves might receive the vote before white women, so they lashed out in a parallel fashion against the men of the working class. Stanton insisted that the exclusion from the NLU proved, quote, what the revolution has said again and again, that the worst enemies of women's suffrage will ever be the laboring classes of men, end quote. Quote, woman, end quote, was the test, but not every woman seemed to qualify. Black women, of course, were virtually invisible within the protracted campaign for woman suffrage. As for white working class women, the suffrage leaders were probably impressed at first by the organizing efforts and militancy of their working class sisters. But as it turned out, the working women themselves did not enthusiastically embrace the cause of woman suffrage. Although Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton persuaded several female labor leaders to protest the disenfranchisement of women, the masses of working women were far too concerned about their immediate problems, wages, hours, working conditions to fight for a cause that seemed terribly abstract. According to Anthony, quote, the great distinctive advantage possessed by the working men of this republic is that the son of the humblest citizen, black or white, has equal chances with the son of the richest in the land. End quote. Susan B. Anthony would never have made such a statement if she had familiarized herself with the realities of working class families as working women knew all too well, their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons who exercised the right to vote continued to be miserably exploited by their wealthy employers. Political equality did not open the door to economic equality. Quote, woman wants bread, not the ballot, end quote was the title of a speech Susan B. Anthony frequently delivered as she sought to recruit more working women into the fight for suffrage. As the title indicates, she was critical of the working woman's tendency to focus on their immediate needs. But they naturally sought tangible solutions to their immediate economic problems. And they were seldom moved by the suffragists' promise that the vote would permit them to become equal to their men, their exploited, suffering men. Even the members of the Working Women's Association, organized by Anthony in the offices of her newspaper, elected to refrain from fighting for suffrage. Quote, Mrs. Stanton was anxious to have a Working Women's Suffrage Association, end quote, explained the first vice president of the Working Women's Association. Quote, it was left to a vote and ruled out. The society at one time comprised over 100 working women, but as there was nothing practical done to ameliorate their condition, they gradually withdrew, end quote. Early in her career as a women's rights leader, 
Susan B. Anthony concluded that the ballot contained the real secret of women's emancipation and that sexism itself was far more oppressive than class inequality and racism. In Anthony's eyes, quote, the most odious oligarchy ever established on the face of the globe, end quote, was the rule of men over women. Quote, an oligarchy of wealth where the rich govern the poor, an oligarchy of learning where the educated govern the ignorant, or even an oligarchy of race where the Saxon rules the African might be endured. But this oligarchy of sex, which makes father, brothers, husband, sons, the oligarchs over the mother and sisters, the wife and daughters of every household, which ordains all men sovereigns, all women subjects, carries discord and rebellion into every home of the nation. End quote. Anthony's staunchly feminist position was also a staunch reflection of bourgeois ideology. And it was probably because of the ideology's blinding powers that she failed to realize that working class women and black women alike were fundamentally linked to their men by the class exploitation and racist oppression, which did not discriminate between the sexes. While their men's sexist behavior definitely needed to be challenged, the real enemy, their common enemy, was the boss, the capitalist, or whoever was responsible for the miserable wages and unbearable working conditions and for racist and sexist discrimination on the job. Working women did not raise the banner of suffrage in mass until the early 20th century when their own struggles forged special reasons for demanding right to vote, demanding the right to vote. When women struck the New York garment industry in the renowned, quote, uprising of the 20,000, end quote, during the winter of 1909 through 1910, the ballot began to acquire a special relevance to working women's struggles. As women labor leaders began to argue, working women could use the vote to demand better wages and improve conditions on the job. Women's suffrage could serve as a powerful weapon of class struggle. After the tragic fire at the New York Triangle Shirtwaist Company claimed the lives of 146 women, the need for legislation prohibiting the hazardous conditions of women's work became dramatically obvious. In other words, working women needed the ballot in order to guarantee their very survival. And then I'll take a moment to pause there. That, that sentence harkens me back to earlier in this book when Angela Y. Davis spoke about how black people which would have specifically been black men needed the vote for survival. Uh, it wasn't to have a, a more equitable standing in the society. It wasn't to have an equal standing in the society. Okay. And so I was just pointing out there that, uh, the, we having some technical difficulties with, the with this recording, I think it's cause of the code, but just pointing out that again, survival was the reason that, working class women began to advocate heavier for the vote. And that was also one of the things that was pointed out as to why black men needed the vote was for the survival of black people. Uh, let's continue reading and see if we can get through a little bit more of this before we end this episode. The Women's Trade Union League urged the creation of wage earners suffrage leagues. A leading member of the New York Suffrage League, Leonora O'Reilly developed the powerful working class defense of women's right to vote. Aiming her argument at the anti-suffrage politicians, she also questioned the legitimacy of the prevailing cult of motherhood. Quote, you may tell us that our place is in the home. There are eight million of us in these, in these United States who must go out of it to earn our daily bread. And we come to tell you that while we are working in the mills, 
the mines, the factories, and the mercantile houses, we have not the protection that we should have. You have been making laws for us, and the laws you have made have not been good for us. Year after year, working women have gone to the legislature in every state and have tried to tell the story of their need." End quote. Now, so Leonore O'Reilly and her working class sisters proclaimed, they were going to fight for the ballot, and indeed, they would use it as a weapon to remove all those legislators from office whose loyalties were with big business. Working class women demanded the right to suffrage as an arm to assist them in the ongoing class struggle. This new perspective within the campaign for women's suffrage bore witness to the rising influence of the socialist movement. Indeed, women's socialists brought a new energy into the suffrage movement and defended the vision of struggle born of the experiences of their working class sisters. And then it's a small stoppage in the chapter here where it looks like they sort of switched topics some. So we'll end this episode. We should be at about 30 minutes. And I'm not going to do too much reflecting on this episode. I've read it in like two different days. I've, I've done reflecting through different portions here and there as we've been reading. So we're just going to end this episode. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. And we put these episodes out on a daily basis to give people the opportunity to begin and to further their struggle to and police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. We outside.